and we're on to chapter five, which is not even such a long chapter, but it's uh, cool stuff happening in there. Um, actually, before we even get to um, to chapter five, I still want to go back a little bit to chapter four because in verse sixteen over there it says that um, Esther agrees to to the plan that she's going to go first fast for three days and then she'll go to Achishverosh to request uh, help for the Jewish people. And she says, and I shall go to the king, though it is unlawful, and if I perish, I perish. And one of the deeper meanings that we did not mention last time, but it's we did mention in the past that we will be mentioning it. And in case I got you confused now, I'll just get to the point. That uh, we said originally that Mordechai and Esther were a married couple. Obviously, for a lady to have two husbands is not allowed. So, But according to Jewish law, if a lady is being forced by another man. It's not her choice. She's not committing adultery, and she is still allowed to go back to her original husband. But, so in this case, whenever Achishverosh summoned Esther and was with her, it was force. So, Esther was not choosing to be with the king. She never volunteered to go be with the king, and therefore, it was always possible for her that in the end, she'll be able to go back to her real husband, Mordechai. But now that she is volunteering to go to Achishver, she's willingly going to him, and she knows quite well what that means, then she says, I know that it's possible that according to Jewish law, it means I'm never going to be able to go back to my actual husband, Mordechai. But if that's what I need to give up for my nation, then that's what I'll do. That's what the deeper meaning behind um, her saying that if she needs to perish, she'll perish. Not just talking about physical death, but um, that she's about to really permanently um, disqualify herself from going back to being married to Mordechai. Anyways, now we're really on to chapter 5. On the third day, Esther donned garments of royalty and stood in the inner courtyard of the palace, facing the palace. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the palace, facing the palace entrance. And third day, third day of what? The third day of the fast. Now, usually someone who is fasting for one day does not look his upper best. Fasting for two days gets even worse. Fasting for three days, you're for sure not uh, your most beautiful. And we know that Esther was picked because Ahasuerus thought she was so beautiful. So you might think that if she now is trying to get into his good graces, she's trying to convince him to save her nation's life. So she's going to try to be as as pleasing in the eyes of Ahasuerus as possible. So she should not be fasting, you would think. But she says, no, I will be fasting. It will be the third day of my fast. I'll be terribly weak. I'll be terribly hungry. I'll look as, as, as terrible as possible. But I know that our fate is in the hands of God. I need to make sure that everyone realizes, all the Jewish people realize that I'm here um, to plead with God in a way. I'm not not trying to convince the physical king in the world, Ahasuerus. It's not really up to him. It's up to God. So that's what she. Um, that's why it says on the third day, the third day of the fast, that when she showed up, not looking her upper best, even though she was wearing her royal clothes. Until now, she wasn't too interested in wearing that. But now she did decide to put that on to make somewhat of a good impression on Ahasuerus, but according to the Talmud, where it says royal clothing, no, does not mean her actual royal clothing, but spiritual royalty. 
she had a prophetic uh, vision right there with her, uh, a spirit. And she stood there and she arrived at the inner court. And, she, and remember, she was uninvited and she arri arrives unannounced. And Ahasuerus is originally not even happy to see her. But we see in verse 2, when the king saw Queen Esther standing there in the courtyard, once she was already standing there, and originally he wanted to get upset, but God said, no, we need to change your heart a little bit that you're not going to be upset. So she found favor in his eyes. The king extended to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand, and Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And uh, the Medrash gives us a little bit more insight over here. The and different commentaries that really Ahasuerus was incredibly upset. How dare she unlawfully come stand in front of him. But then God made him change his mind. And an angel made him stick out his uh, golden uh, scepter. Which was a show that he approves of her coming in. And she touched the end of the scepter. And now she is officially under the care of the king. Now everyone knows according to love. He reaches out his scepter. And the other person touches the tip of the scepter. It means. Um, they're now officially. You know communicating. And nothing unlawful is happening right now. So verse 3. The king said to her. What is it Queen Esther? What is your request? Even if it be half the kingdom, it will be granted you. Because the fact that you're showing up over here suddenly without invitation, and you know it's risky, you know this is not safe for your life, you know this is unlawful, and you're doing it anyways, shows me that this is really serious business. And at that moment, Ahasuerus was just overcome with just wanting to help his wife. And he says, even up to half my kingdom, I'm willing to give it to you. Whatever it is, just what is making you so worried? What is making you take such a big risk? And Esther has a very wise answer. She says, Esther said in verse 4, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to the feast that I have prepared for him. I'm not telling you right just yet what, what we're doing. I need, I need some time. It's better if you come for a social visit in my place. We'll make a nice banquet for you and Haman. And then I'll, make my, I'll be able to make my request and there's a few reasons why Esther insisted on inviting Haman too. Um, one of them would be that if whatever Ahasuerus is going to commit himself to, to fulfill her request, there's Haman right there uh, to witness it. And Ahasuerus is not going to be able to go back on his word with uh, Haman witnessing it. But... Re um, more in line with the commentaries we've been following until now, she is trying to arouse some jealousy in Ahasuerus, and very successfully so. Ahasuerus is now beginning to wonder, hold on, are Haman and Esther plotting against me? I've, I've been wondering about this for a while now. Can I trust Haman? Can I not? Especially in those days, there was a lot of royal backstabbing going along. So um, he's worried now. Why, why is Esther inviting Haman to this party over here? Um, hmm. Then, if you're looking, if you were following along in the Hebrew, the Hebrew letters of the words Yavai Hamelech Vahaman Hayyim, that uh, let the king and Haman come. So the first letters of those words are a Yud and then a He and a Vav and a He. And those letters together spell one of God's special names, Yudke Vavke. So this is one of the places where God's name is alluded to in the Megillah. 
So verse 5, the king said, tell Haman to hurry and fulfill Esther's bidding. And the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. So we see it, it's even mentioned within one verse because there's not even time. She invites them, the feast is already ready and waiting for them. And they hurry over to, um, to the party. And verse 6, see where we're speeding along. At the wine feast, the king said to Esther, What is your plea? It will be granted you. What is your request? Even if it be half the kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. As we said before, something something special is going on over here. If Esther was willing to risk her life, something is going on. He's gonna, And Achishverosh is trying his very best to, um, to help her out. And we're actually now at the halfway point of all the verses in the Megillah. Fun fact. Okay, verse 7. So Esther replied and said, My plea and my request. Because no, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want half your kingdom. I have something much simpler to uh, request of you. Verse 8. If I have found favor in the king's eyes, and if it please the king to grant my plea and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I shall prepare for them, and tomorrow I shall fulfill the king's bidding. So she's pushing it off for another day. She's playing the emotions a little bit longer. Not telling you today. I'm going to be telling you tomorrow. You, dear King Ahasuerus and Haman are invited to come over again. Again, Haman gets invited. The king is wondering why does she insist on inviting Haman to a private party between the king and the queen. And here it says, um, she is tomorrow I shall fulfill the king's bidding. So what does it mean, the king's bidding? Tomorrow... Tomorrow I'll let you know what it is that I really want from you, king, says one commentator, the Al-Sheikh. Or, as Rashi, the commentator, explains, she's saying, tomorrow I'm going to tell you what you've been wanting to know all this time. All this time I have refused to tell you who my nation is, who my people are, what my ancestry is. Tomorrow I'll do as you want. Tomorrow I'll tell you. And verse 9, that day Haman left happy and content. But when Haman saw Mordechai at the king's gate, and Mordechai neither rose nor trembled before him, Haman was filled with wrath against Mordechai. Haman feeling on top of the world. Whoa, he just got invited to a private banquet between just the king and the queen and Haman. I mean, who could be more important than that? And not just that, they're going to have a second banquet, and guess who is invited? The king, the queen, and Haman. So he is like top guy in the whole world. This is amazing. And he leaves the gate all proud of himself. And who does he see sitting there? Not bowing down to him. Not even moving. Mordechai. Now, technically, Mordechai would have been allowed to um, move. He didn't want to bow down to Haman because of, uh, of the idol. But why does it say that he wasn't even trembling before him? He didn't move at all, Mordechai. So... Um, Mordechai wasn't moving at all. Wasn't even paying any attention to Haman being there. So now Haman says, okay, for sure. This, this is not even connected to religion. He's allowed to move in front of me, to at least stand up in front of me or whatever it is. He's not doing that. This has nothing to do with the Jewish religion anymore. It's just a personal hatred Mordechai has against me. And guess what? My hatred for him is right back over there. So now I'm not just, I, I need to like really get rid of this guy. I'm not just waiting till we fulfill the decree against all the Jewish people, which I can't wait to do, but I'm going to have to wait another 11 months for that. 
But now, once and for all, I want to get rid of Mordechai. And this just really ruins his, his whole good mood. So we have verse 10. Haman restrained himself and went to his house and sent for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. He restrained himself from taking revenge right away. He first needs to arrange some permission for that. And he invites his friends. He invites his wife. His wife's name is Zeresh. And she was not a friendly lady at all. And she was actually... Haman knew he could count on her for some beautiful anti-Semitic advice. And she has her Jewish history knowledge down pat. And she actually tells him that if you really want to... Um, get rid of Mordechai while he's Jewish. So you're going to have to look back into the Jewish history and see which punishments people have tried on the Jews and the Jews were saved from that. So then you'll know you can't do that, pull that one on Mordechai. So people were, you know, there's, uh, we mentioned in, in the introduction about Hananiah, Mishal, and Azariah who were in a fire pit. There were people tried to kill them by fire, didn't work. They were saved. Daniel, the king's advisor, has been had been thrown into the lions. Then he was saved from that. Joseph was stuck in, and the, the biblical Joseph was stuck in a dungeon. He was saved from that. Um, whatever happened, whenever people tried different ways to kill the Jews, they kept them being saved. But now Zeresh says, Zeresh says, you know what hasn't been tried yet? The gallows. Nobody ever tried to hang a Jew. So. That is your best bet. If you want to get rid of Mordechai, this is my advice to you. Um, but first we see in verse 11, Haman told them of his glorious wealth and his many sons and all about how the king had promoted and raised him above all the king's ministers and servants. So the question is, why is he saying all these things? I mean, these are his family and friends. They know that he is wealthy and that he has many children and that he has it uh has been promoted by the king. So why is he mentioning all this now? This is all kind of like an introduction. Actually, we're going to see more about it in verse 12. But this is all just introduction to him saying, I have all this, so because I have all this, I should be able to win over Mordechai. But we'll see more in verse 12. So verse 12, then Haman said, in addition, along with the king, Queen Esther invited only me to the feast that she prepared. Tomorrow too, I'm invited to her feast along with the king. And if you look at the comment we have on the handout under verse 12, Haman called his friends and wife to seek their advice about how to deal with Mordechai. Why did he have to tell them about his riches, his children, his prominence, and his exclusive invitation to the party with Esther? These are things that they already all know about. If his point is to say, Hey, how do I get rid of Mordechai? Say so. What are you giving this whole speech that everyone knows? But here, really, Haman was telling them that he had a few ideas of his own about how to get rid of Mordechai. Number one, thanks to his wealth, he had many friends, so to speak, who would definitely help him get rid of his money, of his enemy, sorry. Money talks, he has, he has enough money to convince people to follow his way. So for sure, he should be able to bribe his way along to... Get Mordechai killed. Number two, his many children would not allow Mordechai to torment their father. Even if if, if Mordechai would try to stand up against uh, Haman's plan of killing him, Haman has all his children willing to help him. Three, his being elevated above all the government officials gave him the power to issue decrees that he could make Mordechai's life unpleasant and even have him killed. And finally, number four, there was no fear that Esther would help Mordechai because the fact that he and not Mordechai, was invited to the feast with Ahasuerus, proved that she was his friend. So he's specifically mentioning all these four things to show 
that he should be capable of getting rid of Mordechai. He is in the correct man in the correct position at the correct time to really get rid of Mordechai. But we see, in the end, his illusions got him nowhere. His estate was given over to Mordechai, we'll see in chapter 8. His sons were hung, as we see in chapter 9. He ended up serving Mordechai, which is coming up in the next chapter. And ultimately, Mordechai became the highest official in the government, as we'll see in chapter 8. And in fact, it was Esther, who he is counting on now and being his buddy. She's inviting him to private banquets. But this Esther, who exposed him as an adversary and an enemy, this wicked Haman in chapter 7. So all these little plans that Haman had in mind, trying, telling his friends and family, I'm the best guy to be killing Mordechai. I'm the correct position. Everything is... is lined up properly for me but all that did not help him at all was they all got undone verse 13 so now that Haman has mentioned all the amazingness that happened to him but yet all this is worthless to me whenever I see Mordechai the Jew sitting at the king's gate now mention now notice how he does not mention that what bothers him is that Mordechai refuses to bow down to him He's a little embarrassed to admit that such a little thing bothers him. But what really bothers him? What is something that his anti-Semitic friends can appreciate along with him? That Mordechai is sitting at the king's gate. Why does this guy have such a high position? How? Why, why is he allowed to be over there near the king? That is something that, that Haman can't stand and that nobody should be able to, to stand. That the Jew is actually successful? Terrible. He's not worthy of such high honor. Huh. All right, so verse 14. As we said, Zeresh's wife was a beautiful anti-Semite herself, and she had a wonderful idea for him. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let gallows be made 50 cubits high, and in the morning speak to the king, and they'll hang Mordechai on it. Then you'll be able to go in good spirits with the king to the feast. Haman was pleased with the idea and made the gallows. And the comment under 14, verse 14 is what we pretty much said before, how Zara said people have been trying to get rid of the Jews in so many different ways, but the gallows hasn't been tried. So that's the one you need to try. So first, quickly build it, because for sure you're going to be getting permission. So right away that night, they got to work building the gallows. And then, well, you can't, you can't go hang up Mordechai without permission from the king. So as soon as the morning breaks, go ask the king for permission to kill Mordechai, get rid of him. And once you have taken care of that issue, you'll be able to completely enjoy your banquet with Ahasuerus and Esther. And the comment under, under there also says, let gallows be made. Why did Haman make it himself? His wife and all his friends told him that the best thing for him would be for Mordechai to be wiped out. However, they cautioned him that it was below his dignity to be personally involved in the whole sordid process. Big Prime Minister Haman going to personally hang someone up on the gallows? No. Nope. Therefore, let gallows be made by artisans. Not you, Haman. You don't have to go banging hammers and this and that. It will be made properly and the execu executioners will hang Mordechai on it. So you're not getting your hands dirty, Haman. Don't worry about it. Our sages tell us that hatred disrupts the correct order of things. And people change from the norm when acting out of hatred. And so... 
No, Haman did it himself. Consequently, Haman, who hated Mordechai with a passion, did not wait for any workers, but immediately he personally made the gallows. Can't wait to get rid of Mordechai, even though it should be below my dignity to be building this all myself. I will be doing it myself because I love getting rid of Mordechai. The idea pleases me so much, I'm ready to get my hands dirty for it. And that is all chapter 5. And then we're going to be seeing... A whole uh, interesting story with dreams and lack of or lack of sleep and storybooks being read in chapter six.